this is Anna. Welcome to Reader Pod Podcast. I'm speaking to Joanna Nell in a second, but before I do, I just wanted to say how very much I am looking forward to this. She's the first person who's been on my podcast for the second time, so couldn't be more proud. And I loved the tea ladies of St Jude's Hospital. I loved the characters. I loved the quirkiness of it all. Thank you so much for speaking with me. This is so nice of you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Oh, no, you go above and beyond. Thank you so much. First person who's come on for the second time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. So obviously couldn't have loved the tea ladies more. You must be so proud. How are you feeling? Well, you know, that there's that usual sort of euphoria, uh, you know, when the book comes out and sort of anxiously waiting to see how it's going to be received, particularly by somebody who owns and runs a, a cafe, Anna, as well. So I shall sort of... <laughs> well, I really identified with Hilary and Joy. <laughs> I hope you don't employ anyone like either of the two of them, really. But, um, uh, I so, am Hilary so, with a yeah. pencil. <laughs> I'm sure you're not quite as uh, strict with your protocols as Hilary, but, um, but no, thank you. <laughs> oh, it's a lovely book. Congratulations. I was trying to work out how it was different from your other ones. Um, I know, obviously, you've got the younger character in Chloe in this one, and I thought she was just wonderful. I think you're making a great statement there that ageism doesn't just discriminate against older generation. It goes the other way as well, which was great. Yes. Um, so Chloe wrote herself into the story. So it, it, it's, it's different. Yes, look, um, I think they always say that, you know, writers have one book that they keep rewriting. And in some ways, yes, the themes, uh, you know, sort of the ageing uh, or, or anti-ageism sort of theme continues mm-hmm. with this. But but obviously, I don't want to get bored writing the same book again. I don't want to get readers to get bored reading the, the same book. So in this one, we have three points of view and three very different characters. And, and I really wanted to bring in that younger perspective. I do have a, a daughter who's the same age as Chloe. And although I keep saying to both my daughter and to readers, it's not based on my daughter at all. But <laughs> just seeing her, you know, that teenagers now are facing a very different world to the world that, you know, I grew up in or, mm-hmm. or the, you know, being a teenager in the 80s versus Absolutely. being a teenager in the 2020s is very different. But the one thing that Chloe and my daughter have in common is that sadly they've sort of grown up without their grandmothers being, you know, really in their, their lives. In, in, in my daughter's case, you know, one who, who died a few years ago and mm-hmm. um, my mother who lives on the other side of the world. So I was sort of interested to see what she thought of, of ageing. And, and so it's, uh, as you say, ageism is something that dis- it, it discriminates on the basis of age. And that, you know, we, we think of it in terms of younger people discriminating or having sort of stereotypical prejudices against older people, but it can work the other way. And it does work the other way. Absolutely. Um, too. And Ashton Applewhite, a very passionate anti-aging activist, sort of points this out as well. Uh, so I wanted to include the teenage character, both as a sort of a, a mirror to hold up to the sort of um, aging of the, the older ladies, but also to see how she feels about um, that certain stereotypes that maybe are held against young people like her and basically smash those. And <laughs> so, so yes, I, I wanted to sort of, you know, maybe expand a little bit and, and having characters of, of other age to, to make it fresh. It was a fantastic read. And it's true. We all discriminate, like every age is discriminated against. It's not just the elderly. And I thought it was a great way to expand on your ageism activism, which you do so beautifully. Um, one thing that hasn't changed in your books, though, are the quirky headings. Now, I just love them. <laughs> do they take a long time to think of? 
<laughs> You've got buns without borders. Uh, <laughs> like in the bus lane. Yeah, the um, they, they started off right at the, the very beginning with my very first book, the, the Single Ladies. And I was workshopping that manuscript, which was called something completely different. It had many, many working titles, which were all, all uh, went out of the window when uh, when it was uh, the publishers had it. But mm-hmm. I was work- workshopping that with um, the wonderful Kate Forsyth in a workshop called The Story Doctor. And one of the exercises that we did between the two weekend workshops was to go away and to break down each of our chapters and to give them a heading, you know, to work out what the word count was, who was in the scene, what the functions were of each scene or each chapter, if you like, because what I realised is that each chapter, each scene has to work really hard. It has to win its place Mm -hmm. in the book. So I I really found that that was a fun thing to do because it also reminded me, you know, when you have on Scrivener or or Word or whatever, lots of different scenes, you know, chapter one, chapter 13, I can't really remember what Mm -hmm. happens in each of those, but to give them those quirky titles and they do sometimes just pop into my head or I take, you know, one line or one little throwaway comment in each chapter. They really help me to work out what the sort of the essence and the flavor of that chapter is going to be. And they're just, they're a bit of fun. They're a bit of whimsy, if you like. And it's just something I've sort of maintained through through the books and I've really enjoyed it. And there are some, I think it's Rick Reardon who does some wonderful uh, chapter titles in in his books as well. I just think they, uh, other people I've seen do really, really well as well. Oh, well, I know as soon as I received my copy, it was the chapter headings that I flicked through to see and laugh over at first <laughs> before I even turned it over to read the blurb. I love them. <laughs> well, I think that the first one I thought was, you know, it sort of popped into my head and I thought it was quite apt for, for poor Hillary, who has uh, the first uh, chapters called Life in the Bus Lane. And it really, she has fallen from life in the fast lane. You know, she's sort of fallen from grace. She's fallen from she this sure sort of has. position um, uh, in society at the golf club now to uh, living with her elderly sister, who's a bit of a nightmare, lovely Nancy, in her ancient car. And, and, and Nancy's a terrible driver. So the first the first scene, Life in the Bus Lane, I thought was particularly apt. For, for Completely apt. <laughs> but that leads me on to another question as well. Now, who was Hillary based on? I know your previous books, you've taken a lot of inspiration from works of art and the Archibald Prizes. But who was Hillary based on? Mm. I don't think she was based on anyone. I mean, ah. the, yes, the other protagonists in the books have been at least visually inspired. Sometimes I need to have this sort of picture in my mind of what the protagonist looks like, even if mm-hmm. their character is, is sort of completely different. And they have, as you say, been mm. uh, based either on, you know, sculptures or, or Archibald finalists. So, no, Hillary, the, the, the sort of the inspiration that from the book wasn't a work of art. It was um, something completely different. And Hillary, mm. I like to find a picture or a photograph and I often go through sort of stock images on the internet and I just sort of landed on this sort of rather dow-looking woman and the photograph just seemed to fit with this character that I had sort of starting to form in my mind. So, yeah, I have to say it was one of those stock images from from the internet. (laughs) I know that you got this idea, um, you told us about it on our last podcast episode, thank you very much, uh, that it was from going to the hospital that you used to work at, I think. Was that it? 
right. Yeah, that's right. So I trained at the John Radcliffe Hospital in, in Oxford. And it's been 30 years since I qualified and, and worked there. But two Christmases ago, which was, you know, 2019 Christmas, travel. who knew what was just on the horizon oh. then? And uh, we were, it was the last time we were over visiting family in the UK. And my son, who is, he was 20, 21 at the time, he developed an infection in his elbow over Christmas, poor thing. And so sort of waited till New Year's Eve to really insist that I had a close look on it. And I think being the child of, I don't know if any anyone who's listening is the child of a, uh, a medical person, do you know that you really have to be in, in quite a bad way before you get any attention? <laughs> but when I looked at his elbow, I knew that we had to, we had to get some medical help, some antibiotics. So we ended up at the hospital and I was just amazed that it hadn't changed in, in the majority of the hospital, hadn't changed at all in 30 years, including the League of Friends, which is the little volunteer tea shop that I had spent many a happy, well, I'd say hour, probably minutes of each visit, uh, whiling away, drinking coffee, picking up a Mars bar or something. And although it was never the most efficiently run place, it had heart. And the people that worked there were, uh, you know, generously gave up their, their time and they raised an awful lot of money. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds and of oh, dollars, wow. yeah. if not millions for vital equipment. Yeah, I think people don't realise, I mean, it's not just serving tea and buns, but there's a lot of fundraising that goes on by the volunteer organisations. No, uh, and I never thought of it. Sort of, I really of always felt, mm. the, yeah, they, they do. It's it's incredible, the, the equipment that they do raise money for. And I've always seen them really as the sort of beating heart of the hospital, which is in itself like a little community. But after we'd picked up the prescription from the pharmacy, we were walking out and there were big boards up and they were doing a major renovation at the front of the hospital at the main entrance. Um, and they'd already opened an outlet there and it was one of the big coffee chains. It might have been Costa or M&S or something mm. like that. And it was busy. There were lots of people who were lining up for their coffees and all the things that were served in the volunteer kiosk were also being served takeaway in this place. And I suddenly worried that this is probably the first competitor that they'd faced in the whole years that they'd been opened. And, mm. and just to show you that inspiration comes from anywhere, this idea popped into my mind that it would be interesting to see what lengths, what skullduggery, what tricks they would uh, be prepared to get up to in order to sort of save their, their shop. That was the inspiration. Oh, really just hit you. That's incredible. Yeah. It just shows, doesn't it? A brighter is never off, <laughs> even on a New Year's Eve <laughs> with the sun with the sun. That's right. Elbow. I think Elizabeth Gilbert says either in one of her talks or in Big Magic now, and she said, look, ideas and inspiration is all around you. All you need to do is just turn your head just a fraction and notice something. So it can be, you know, ideas are everywhere. I think people are always interested in where writers get their inspiration. Sometimes they're from glamorous things like painting. Sometimes they're from very unglamorous things like trips to um, outpatient. Oh, wow. Two of the things that I was sort of looking at with this book was about sort of volunteering and, uh, you know, because these ladies are all volunteers and I uh, sort of came up with some really interesting um, statistics. Because during pandemic and lockdown, a lot of volunteers did uh, step back from their various uh, roles, you know, whether it was sort of delivering Meals on Wheels or helping yes. out at canteens or in community sports and, and things. And that was the time when my husband decided to uh, answer for uh, delivery people for Meals on Wheels. So he joined Benevolence Society. And, oh, fantastic. Um, what I was interested in, I was just, yeah, when I was preparing for interviews and things, I looked at some statistics about volunteers. And, you know, we see in the book that each 
each of the characters is volunteering for a very different reason. And mm. I think that that's true of anybody who does give up their time. Mm. Um, but I do realise that a third of people over the age of 15 in Australia volunteer. That's six million Australians volunteer every year. I was just really... I am astounded, yeah. Yeah. And the 40 to 59 age group are the most likely. I suppose that involves a lot of sort of school sport and, and volunteering in either yeah. religious groups or sporting groups. So um, that was one of the really encouraging things that I, you know, discovered during writing the book. Wow, I would not have pictured it to be so high. That's extraordinary. Yes, exactly. So I think Hilary sort of sees herself as an extension of the hospital's executive, even though she's sort of managing the the volunteer um, cafeteria. And the the work really is no less important. But yeah, Yeah. they take it it seriously. Well, she takes it very seriously. Joy takes it less seriously, that's for sure. <laughs> she sure does. <laughs> Love Joy with her blue eyelashes. She's gorgeous. Loved her. <laughs> Have you ever worn false eyelashes? I, I did. I've tried a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> And they keep peeling, pulling off, which is really what prompted me to, you know, Joy has some accessory uh, malfunctions, one of which is losing uh, an eyelash at an inopportune moment. But they are really cumbersome to wear. So I'm, I'm always astounded with people's eyelashes. I wish I was. Yeah. They always look lovely. They look but... great to other people. They <laughs> yeah. do. They do. So this is your second book that you've had um, in a pandemic. Um, I can't believe that it's been going on for so long. How are you going with it? I went to your virtual launch on Friday and it was so much fun, but oh my goodness, I was so worried about the storm. You had to have an outside. I I think we we did have a, we decided to do a brave uh, thing. My lovely writer friend, Michelle Barraclough said, no, we must have a launch. We must do a Facebook, Instagram live. Of course, we can't control the weather. Uh, We have to be out doors socially distanced so we decided to hold a, a picnic the two of us so fully vaccinated um but the weather forecast as we looked at it was getting worse and worse the wind was getting up there was a big hailstorm that was sort of on the horizon in fact mm. i think we stopped looking at the radar at one stage so look it's almost everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong but we had great fun doing it and i think that's the thing it's just you know to sometimes things are formal sometimes they're just informal and i think what's lovely about having such a wonderful community of writers and readers and reviewers and podcasters and wonderful people like yourself Anna is that you feel like these people are friends you know in a way you know and sometimes we may never have met but you can feel like you can be yourself Mm. in in front of people I don't necessarily feel like I have to be you know pretending to to be something that I'm not and I just I like to have fun I like to have a laugh be playful and look some of the writers who are launching I really do feel for anyone who's debut author who's releasing novels during during lockdown it's not quite the same when you really can't go out and meet booksellers face to face and do author events and signings so that we really miss but I think um, I've noticed that some people are are very inventive with their social media and the way that they they've got around that so oh I think it's an extraordinary time what you can yeah the innovation that I've seen is just incredible it's um and I know that you know with all this extra time reading must be going through the roof but but it's just 
just not the way that it used to be. But it has been great to see everybody's workarounds and um, new ways of doing things and that the trivia was just so cute. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no, we try. We try. So I know Sandy Docker did a lovely one as well. And, yeah. I, you know, I lo- love having that little insight into other people's sort of writing lives and things on now, watching them. Uh, the thing that I've seen. I'm not so great yeah. with the videos, but um, I'm getting there. Oh, yeah. I've got to practice more videos and more reels. I think um, reels, everything that yeah. you look up says that reels are the way of the future, but they just make me cringe. It's a sort of insecurity almost that when I look at everybody else's, I just think, oh my gosh, they're so polished. They're doing yeah, such I know. wonderful things. And uh, it always seems like somebody's doing something amazing, but you can do, do what you want. Yeah, doing. absolutely. And you're not seeing their first takes either. Um, so are you writing on anything at the moment? How are you, what are you working on next? Well, I had just started, I, I will be taking a little bit longer over the next book. I just needed to have a little bit of a break to refill the inkwell, if you like. Mm-hmm. So there won't be book next year, but the hopefully will be the year after. Oh, and you know me, I'm always a little bit um, shy of talking about uh, books when they're early on because they often do change. And yeah, of course. As soon as you yes, as soon as you start talking about the idea, it seems so flat when you when they say it outside <laughs> until it's really fully uh, formed and on its way, and you've worked out what the elevator yes. is. But yes, uh, absolutely. To not exactly retirement imminent for me, but sort of semi-retirement from my medical jobs looming on the horizon. I just wanted to look at what the implications of, of retirement were and how that changes, particularly a, a marriage and relationships between a, a couple who've worked together and retire together. So that is what I'm working on at the moment. Oh, and, wow. And uh, yes, as, as always, you know, I will be sharing the, the ups and downs and the glories and triumphs and disasters of writing that manuscript. Uh, oh, well. I think you do that so well. I love seeing behind the scenes and seeing it is. Sometimes you don't really want to see what goes into the sausage, but um, other times, I think uh, Charlotte Wood said in her new book, I think writers are always fascinated by other writers' processes, and and mine involves drafting and redrafting, <laughs> redrafting. So often there's not very much of the first draft that ends up in the the, the final book. It's like just really sort of sculpting it until um, I just have to have something down on paper before I can before the panic goes away and I can start oh. sort of working on rewriting and editing. That's when the magic happens. Oh wow. No, it's so extraordinary to see behind the scenes. I love it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Joanna Nell. I so appreciate it. This was fantastic. Thank you so oh, well, thank much. Thank you, Anna. You're a wonderful supporter and always so uh, upbeat and um, such a lovely, delightful person to talk to as well. So thank you. Thanks for having oh, me on. Thank you. Okay, so thanks for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe. See you next time on Read a Pod Podcast.